Well, some of you may have seen this story on MSN earlier this week. It, uh, it seems a fitting one on this day in which we honor our seniors. High school senior Corbin Russell has his college applications filled out, an upcoming graduation ceremony to attend, and what looks to be a promising future ahead of him. He just has one problem. Records show that he is dead. The Nebraska teen, who is in fact very much alive, has repeatedly had college applications rejected due to an incident two years ago when his social security number was used in a death benefit claim for a deceased South Carolina man. Credit agencies and other record-keeping institutions show that he is dead, and all three major credit reporting companies say that documentation is needed to resolve the issue. Proof that he is alive. Proof that he is who he is, that, you know, that the name that he's using goes with the body that he's living in. Um, I couldn't help but think how appropriate that is to this series that we're in as we are uh, working our way through Romans chapter 8. Paul is dealing, as you know, with matters of life and death, though probably not in the way that we might first think about that. What we're finding so far is that his contention is that everyone who is living apart from Jesus Christ is dead, even though they're very much alive. His contention is that apart from Christ, there is no life. There is no life, certainly for eternity. There is no life as God intended it to be lived in this life, in the here and the now. And, and what I want us to understand this morning is that, that just in the same way that, that Corbin Russell needs documentation to prove that he really is alive and not living as someone else, the people of God, those who identify themselves as lovers of God, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, they need documentation as well. The people of God need proof that they are very much alive with God. Because way too often, way too often, we live our lives looking a whole lot like those who, who do not have the life of God in them. And that, according to Paul, is dead. That is dead. Now remember, we're studying Romans 8, response to that rather cynical question that popped into my head following Resurrection Sunday. So what? Christ is risen. So what? Yes, he is risen indeed. Thanks, Rick. You were going there. Okay, so Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. So what? So? What difference does it make? We get to live. We get to live. Yeah. Does it make any difference in this life? Or does our faith and our trust in Jesus simply make our eternal destiny secure? Yes, and yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, as we said last week, there's no doubt that, that eternal destiny is, is of ultimate importance. You know, we need to be sure 
of where it is we go after this life is done. We want to be sure that those that we know and love and, and, and even those that we don't know, it, it, eternal destiny is of ultimate importance. But there is much more, as I suggested last week, there is much more to being a follower of Jesus than just having heaven be a done deal. Why do so many people who claim to be followers of Jesus spend their days here on earth living as if his death and resurrection have nothing to do with this life, with the here and now, or, or if so, perhaps in a rather superficial kind of a way? And I think, honestly, the answer to that is because they have believed a lie. They have believed a a very significant lie that has been going around since creation, since the beginning of of time on earth. A lie that comes from the enemy, the one who hates God, and the one who hates everything that God stands for. So, what is the lie? Some of you know it, we've talked about this before, that that God has not been truthful about life. That that there is more to life than what God is letting on. That he is holding back on some things that bring purpose and meaning and satisfaction. The lie is, is that we can have God and There are other things that we can pursue as well because even though there may be a certain sense of satisfaction that is found in God, we need other things too. That, my friends, is an enormous lie that comes from the enemy. Remember, the one who hates God and hates all that God stands for. The result of believing that lie, in terms of the the large theological picture, is what gets Paul started in this book of Romans. The lie is that that all humanity, uh, the the result of the lie is that all humanity is is under the condemnation of God because of their their rejection of God. And and quite honestly, it's a deserved condemnation. The creature has rejected God the creator, the one who has made the creature for himself. And you remember that Paul spends the first seven chapters of this letter to the Romans explaining that whether a person is under the law or whether they are not, whether they are a Jew, whether they are a Gentile, it does not matter because neither has a heart that seeks after God. Paul says in those early chapters, there is no one who seeks after God, not one. But also, he weaves through those seven chapters on his way to this this amazing truth in chapter. He weaves into those seven chapters the wondrous truth of God's love for sinful and rebellious people. You know, as, as the people of God, as followers of Jesus... We, we believe in a God who, who didn't do what he ought to do. He didn't do what a lot of us would do and sometimes 
even practice in terms of our relationships with those who reject us and let us down. What do we do? Wash our hands of them. But God did not. God's love for sinful and rebellious people is so great that he provided the fix. He demonstrated through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross that the sin of rebellion is paid for by the one who has been rebelled against. And that's just a truth that we have heard so often. If we've grown up in church circles, we're kind of numb to it. But God, not having to, chose to redeem those who had rebelled against him and paid for that sin of rebellion himself. It is, it is God's miraculous intervention and his way of dealing with the, the selfish human heart. And so Paul drives home that point so that when we arrive in Romans chapter 8, we are ready to be appropriately wowed at what God has done for us. God has rescued us. And as a result of that rescue, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ is risen, so what? We've said, whoa, so what? It means that by placing our faith, our trust, our confidence in Him, we are a people who no longer live under the condemnation the just judgment of God. So then, the truth that Christ is risen, though it is certainly a a huge and important piece for our security for eternity, has has so much more to do. I, I would venture to say at the risk of sounding like a heretic, Christ is risen has more to do with this life than it does that life. More to do in terms of our participation and our involvement. Uh, What have we done to earn heaven? Nothing. What have we done to earn God's love and His grace? Absolutely nothing. But if we know that nothing is what we've done and we are recipients of what is to come, what does that mean in the here and now? How does that impact us in this life on this earth? Are you with me? Okay, looking a little sleepy, just checking. John? Hmm. Yeah. That moment when he cried out to God, uh, wondering about forsakenness. And yes, 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 absolutely. Uh, the, the awesome presence of, of God. Um, you know, we, we just live in a society, in a world that uh, is full of, of quick fixes. We live in a world that doesn't like pain. Um, when we have pain, we, we seek to, to find the solution. Uh, the, the quicker, the better. 
Uh, and, and so we tend to sort of take that, that, that quick fix mentality and, and kind of gloss over God's holiness and God's justice and God's righteousness in the same way. Wow. You know, I hope that Holy Week and the reminder of the suffering of Christ uh, is vivid in our minds, uh, that, that prolonged sense of, of the suffering of the Holy Lamb of God, not just in that week, but <laughs> I think from, from day one when he entered the fallen world. Um, God's righteousness and God's justice, so important to have a clear understanding of that so that we are, we are responding appropriately to what God has, has done for us. So, raises a question for me. Have you, have you ever wondered why more people in our society have no interest in Jesus? I, I mean, that's a concern to us, right? I mean, we, we, we look at the, the direction of, of, of where our country seems to be going. There's concern. There's, there's, there's a sense of, of what we perceive as, as lawlessness and and, and self-absorption, and there doesn't seem to be any concern for God in the land. Why do people not feel that a relationship with God is of any significant importance to them? I want to say to you, <laughs> I think it's because those who claim to be followers of Jesus live their daily lives as if he has no significance to them either. Is that harsh? I think the reason that people in our country don't show any interest in the significance of a relationship with God is because more of God's people live their lives as if a relationship with Him is not significant to them either. And I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, but, but where we're going and, and, and where we've come to in, in Romans chapter 8, where we'll continue to go... I think this is some of the most significant teaching in all of Scripture for us to understand what God has done for us in Christ and what that means and how we respond to that. If Jesus is not important to us and if the importance of Christ is not demonstrated in our lives, then how on earth do we expect others to think that He should be important to them? The life that many followers of Jesus live is more influenced and shaped by the lie that we spoke of than by Jesus. So I, I, I know it's harsh. Forgive me for the harshness, but man, this conviction has just been growing inside for myself. And you know me, I've always said misery loves company. And so I'm sharing it with you. This is significant truth for us to grab onto as God's people. So we're going to read from Romans chapter 8 again this morning. We're going to start back to the first verse, and we're going to read all the way through verse 11. Uh, don't worry, we're not going to do this you know, every Sunday morning as the verses continue to grow and the chapter gets longer. But I want us to remember where we started, where we've traveled through, so that when we focus on verses 9 to 11, uh, it really uh, crystallizes some things for us. So let's stand and let's read together, shall we? <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, here we go together. Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful humanity to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in human flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind controlled by the sinful nature is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. My brothers and sisters, the amazing word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Yahoo, even. Go ahead and be seated. Okay. Heather, can we put verse 9 back on the screen? Here we go. I would love for you to turn to someone nearby, talk with them for just a minute or two about it, what Paul is saying here, what it means to not be controlled. This is... This is the first time that Paul has turned in this chapter to the personal pronoun. He's been thinking and speaking in terms of just kind of humanity in general. Now he turns to the believers in Rome and says, You, however, believers in Applewood, you, however, are not controlled by the, spirit, by the sinful nature, but are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Turn to someone nearby and... and See if you can figure out what does it mean to not be controlled by the sinful nature. Go ahead. See what your neighbor thinks. What does it mean not to be controlled by the sinful nature? Okay, we ready? What do you think? What's Paul driving at? 
What does it mean to not be controlled by the sinful nature? Take a stab. We do not have to sin. Are you sure? How many believe Sharice is a heretic? We do not have to sin. We do not. That's a bold statement. We do not have to sin. Okay. What else? John? Well, I think in our society, um, we're given a lot of choices every day. Mm-hmm. Okay. Watching people that don't have the knowledge to make the right choices. Okay, okay. And, and we've learned that previously, that, that, that their minds cannot please God. Their, their minds are hostile to God. Jill. Um, but uh, I am tripped up by the fact that uh, Paul had a thorn that mm-hmm. he asked God to take away. He did. And God didn't take it away. He did. And Okay. And so I, it has to do with the Holy Spirit and his presence and power being in us and available to us at all times and all things. We, we are completely controlled by the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't have to do with if you don't swear or if you don't, yeah, if you don't. Or drink or chew or hang with those who do. Mixed bathing. Put that one on the list. No mixed bathing. Okay. <laughs> doesn't have to do with behavior. It doesn't have to do with our behavior. It has to do with God's behavior. Okay. So what's tripping you up? That's how you started this. I think it trips... Well, I don't know that I'm right. How many think you... No. <laughs> Cindy, go ahead. Okay. 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 Okay, okay. I would go with that. I would modify it just a tad and say that the sin nature, I think, has impacted both body and spirit. I also think that the Spirit of God comes in and He impacts our spirit as well as, as our body. Um, let's, let's go further because I think Paul addresses that. Um, tell me again, what is the lie that humanity believes? That God's holding back, that there's life apart from God. There is life apart from God. In these verses, Paul is making much to do about the Spirit of God. Jill is, is, is gone down that road. Those who are indwelled 
by, by the Spirit of God are, are those that belong to God. We'll see more of this, this next week together. The Spirit of God has been given to those who belong to Him to teach and instruct and prompt them in how to live as redeemed people. Now, we immediately start to think about all the things, as Jill was referring to, that, that are do's and don'ts, that God's people do, that God's people don't do. That's not to say that, that following Jesus doesn't impact our behavior. It does. Following Jesus impacts our behavior hugely, but initially, probably not in the way that most of our minds track. There is something so much bigger here. When Jesus said in John 14 about the Spirit of God, He said the Spirit's going to come and He's going to inhabit you, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit. What does a counselor do? counselor instructs, a counselor teaches, a counselor corrects. The counselor of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. To be controlled by the Spirit of God in Paul's thinking is to live a life that, as we talked about last week, is obsessed with Jesus Christ. It really is. And we don't like that word obsession, but here's, here's the, the definition. Did you, anybody do the assignment last week? Did you ask anybody who knows you well to rate you on your obsession with Jesus? Obsession is the domination of one's thoughts or feelings by a persistent idea, image, desire, etc., according to Webster. Next Sunday, we're going we're gonna to read Paul's words that as followers of Jesus, we are no longer obligated to the sin nature. That's what Cindy has brought up. There is not an obligation there any longer. Before, we were obligated. Paul says in verse 2, the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. So when the spirit of God moves into our lives, our orientation to life changes. The spirit frees our thinking process of being focused upon self and life apart from God. That's where we were before Christ. The Spirit doesn't free us to be all we can be. The Spirit frees us to be all that God created us to be for Him. Do you hear that difference? The Spirit frees us now to live the life for which we were created, and we were created to live life in intimate relationship with God, as opposed to the lie that says life can be enjoyed and experienced and and you can find great fulfillment apart from God. No. The lie that holds humanity under condemnation is that we can live life without the one for whom we were created. What Paul is saying that what was once impossible is now an everyday experience. And it's not only possible, but it's commonplace. And I think this is the piece that that really sort of trips me up, and maybe it trips you up as well. It is commonplace. It's part of the everydayness of life for the people of God. And we're talking about a relationship with God and the presence of God as followers of Jesus. What happens too often, I think, is that people make sort of an intellectual or an emotional commitment to God so that they can go to heaven when they die. We want to get the fire insurance taken care of, and then we proceed to live life as we choose. Paul says that is not possible. Those who are indwelled by the Spirit are controlled by the Spirit. 
salvation doesn't work the way of just praying a prayer and getting my salvation paid for and then living life the way that I choose. That is a plan of salvation that does not include the indwelling of the Spirit of God, which brings a change in our orientation. Suddenly, for the first time, we are able to think of our lives in relationship to God. We are able to think of who God is and what God has done and what God expects and and the holiness of God. Do you see all these things are a result of the Spirit at work in our lives? So Paul is saying that, that just as the Spirit of God gives life to the spirit of those who belong to Him, so too the Spirit of God gives life to our mortal bodies. That sense in which if... I sound like I'm really negative this morning. Forgive me for that. But we, we tend to think in terms of salvation sometimes only in, in terms of heaven. And so we hear Paul say that the Spirit will give life to our mortal bodies because he lives there. We think of, I think of, the, the new body. You know, someday that this, this body is going to be remade and I'm going to have this new heavenly body. I don't disagree with that, but I think there's more to it. I think it has to do again with how we live now. Paul is driving at, he's told us that, that those who's, who are in Christ, their minds are able to, to please God. They are able to think in such a way that is honoring and pleasing to God. So I think Paul is driving at the idea that, that as we think in Christ, indwelled by the Spirit, our lives and our actions will follow suit, those things that we do in our bodies. As the Spirit brings new life to our minds and our ways of thinking, He will also then bring new life to the ways in which we live because we are no longer controlled by the sinful nature. Does this make sense? Okay, got to hurry. Got to hurry. Um, and I think, I think this is going to be evident to those that get to know us as we are followers of Jesus. I want to suggest to you just four quick areas, and, and we're going we're to carry these over again next week as well because they go so perfectly with, with what Paul is talking about in terms of being children of God. Um, I mentioned them last week, the four Ps, and that just helps me remember um, ways that the Spirit is going to prompt life in us because our orientation is, is different. I think the first thing, or the first P, that the Spirit is going to prompt in us is the position or the place of God. He's going to prompt in our thinking the position or the place of God. Romans chapter 1, Paul says that the cause of God's wrath being revealed upon humanity is they have not recognized him as creator. God is the life giver. He is the provider. He is the sustainer. Is there anything or any place in life where God does not belong? The answer to that is no. Is there any place in life where God is not deserving of worship and praise? The answer to that is no. You see, the Spirit through the truth of God's word, teaches us this. This is God's world. It is his rightful place to be the sovereign one. 
the one who is honored by all of his creation, and those who are controlled by the Spirit of God will grieve when God is not given his rightful respect as sovereign creator. I think the Spirit of God comes into our lives, takes control of our thinking, and causes us for the first time to begin to think in terms of who God is and what he deserves versus who I am and what I deserve. Suddenly, life is beginning to revolve around the one for whom it should revolve, and that is the one who is sovereign overall. We'll say more about that. The second P, the second P, because God is the sovereign over this world and the universe, that means, I think you'll agree with this, that he's pretty important. And if God is pretty important, then I think the Spirit is going to prompt us about the priority of God in our lives. You see, we can recognize that, that life is supposed to revolve around Him, but then the next step, the next prompting, the next teaching and the leading that the Spirit does in our lives is I think He takes us down the path of the priority of God. How important is God to you? How important is God to me? That will begin to impact the way that I choose to live. You know, Paul's concerned about thinking and acting, thinking and actions that flow out of our thinking. And I think these, these first two Ps are sort of more of the thinking process. The Spirit gives us the ability to think of God's rightful place and position. The Spirit gives us the opportunity and the challenge and the blessing to recognize God's place of priority that should be in the lives of those who are his followers. And then the right thinking, I think, leads us to to another couple of Ps. And again, more with this next week. The purposes of God. If, If God is the sovereign, and that makes him important, then that means that he is a priority in my life. And if God is a priority in my life, then I need to begin thinking about the purposes of God. And, and, and what he has called those who love him and follow him to do. How are the purposes of God reflected in my life? We've said this many times at Applewood, that God's number one purpose, and I think it's substantially supported throughout Scripture, is to bring glory and honor to himself. And, and if we're not careful, we can, we can easily find ourselves falling into that place of doing things for the glory of God, and yet doing those things for the glory of God calls a lot of attention to ourselves. There's a subtleness there. And, and I think that it, it requires a real serious commitment to understanding what God is calling us to through the power of his spirit. We'll we'll do more with that next Sunday as well. That's the purpose of God. What are God's purposes? What brings God glory? And how do we participate in that lifelong journey of bringing God glory? And the last one is, for lack of a better word, I call it the, the pleasure of God. The pleasure of God. What, what brings God joy? What brings God pleasure? Do you, do you ever think in terms of the delight of God? 
what brings him pleasure? And you've heard me say before that, that, that John Piper says there is nothing that brings greater pleasure and honor to God that when, than when his creatures express their dependence upon him. The pleasure of God is when we go, oh, I need you in everything. When's the last time you expressed that in your life? Don't answer that question. But do you see where it goes? How, how easily we can live dichotomized lives. How easily we have our work world, our neighbor world, our family world, our relational world, and our spiritual world. Paul is saying in this chapter, there's no division. Those who are indwelled by the Spirit of God are controlled by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is going to prompt in those who are controlled by Him a Godwardness in all things. Awareness of who He is, awareness of His importance, awareness of His purposes, and awareness of His pleasure when His purposes and His priority and His position are recognized by those whom He has created for Himself.